Let's take the Word of God, and if you turn with me uh, in God's Word to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Uh, in just a moment, we're going to uh, begin reading in verse 22, and I'll um, let you know when we're going to begin this. But if you remember, in uh, Acts chapter 17, we are in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey. At the beginning of the chapter, Paul is in Thessalonica. Uh, there was an uproar in the city. Uh, the Jews uh, found lewd fellows of the baser sort to cause the uproar, and so Paul left Thessalonica prematurely. He went down to Berea, and in Berea he began to preach the gospel there. And the Jews in Thessalonica heard that he was preaching in Berea, so they made a trip down to Berea and stirred up the people in Berea, which drove Paul out of the city, and so Paul is in Athens. And we spent some time last week talking about while he was waiting for uh, Timotheus and Silas, who were still back in Berea, he's waiting for them. And while he's waiting for them, Paul sees the city of Athens and what is going on there. Now let me give you a few points of reminder as to what did Paul find in Athens. From verse 16 to verse 21, let me give you a summary because this is very important because this is what's going to prompt the message that Paul's going to preach that we're going to read about this morning. In verse 16, Paul's spirit is going to be stirred when he sees that the city is wholly given to idolatry. And so his spirit is going to be stirred. I would encourage you to listen to the message last week about being stirred in your spirit. We're all stirred. The, the principle that we learn is not just about being stirred. What we need is, what does the stirring cause us to do? He could have just gotten angry and said, look at these people, how bad and evil they are. No, he got stirred and he preached the gospel. And so the response of the stirring is what is important. But I want you to notice here what he found. Although the city was completely given to idolatry, um, what do we find in the city that is wholly given to idolatry? Well, the first thing that, and so I wrote down these points, it's not part of last week's message, but it's a summary. We find spiritual apathy in Athens. If you notice in verse 17, Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, and in the market, notice, daily with them that met with him. Uh, everywhere Paul went, when, especially when there was a synagogue, he preached, and the Bible identifies that some people believed. But apparently there in Athens, he's preaching every day, disputing every day, and there's no one that believes. So what does that tell us? Where there is idolatry, there is spiritual apathy. Nobody did anything. As a matter of fact, they mocked Paul, saying he is a babbler. The second thing we identified in verse 18 is that uh, a city that is wholly given to idolatry, we find some empty philosophies. Do you notice in verse 18? Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. So you find here that whatever, whenever there is idolatry, there is a spiritual apathy, but there is also... Uh, empty philosophies. People live and conduct their lives by a 
philosophy of life. Every live, everybody lives by a philosophy. Everybody conducts their lives in a particular way. And so here we find some, but either way, those philosophies were empty. Uh, what were these philosophies? You want to be happy? Live this way. There are, the goal is happiness. Uh, and we talked about how happiness cannot be a goal. It is always the result of something else. And then we found also in verse 18, we find a contempt for truth. They say, what will this babbler say? I talked about what that expression means. During that time, people would travel and they would make money off of uh, tales and stories. And they would travel from city to city, gather a crowd, and people would give them money for their storytelling. And so they said, oh, he's just a babbler. He's just a, another one of those storytellers. And uh, they saw him as a babbler. That is a contempt for the truth. And it's interesting that today, even in the 21st century, people, what do they do against Christianity, those who believe in God? They mock them. The idea, they're just babblers. Look at what they believe. It's so ridiculous. It's interesting. That's not a 21st century thing. It's always been that way. So there's a contempt for truth. And lastly, also in verse 21, there is an environment of idleness and entertainment. Do you notice verse 21? Uh, when they brought Paul on Mars Hill... Um, they brought him and they said, oh, tell us this new doctrine. And then there's a parenthesis. They didn't ask Paul to tell them the new doctrine that they did not, did not hear because they were interested. God's Word tells us, verse 21, For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. What is that? It is an environment of idleness and entertainment. And it's interesting to me as I look at those points, what is, this is what stirred Paul up. What, what stirred him up? There was spiritual apathy. There was empty philosophies that uh, were permeated throughout Athens. There was a contempt for truth, and there was an environment of idleness and entertainment. And I wonder, man, that looks like the world today, doesn't it? There is spiritual apathy all around us. People are no longer interested in the things of God. There are empty philosophies and people live their lives uh, by a way of life that is against God and against His Word. There's also a contempt for the truth. And there is also an environment of idleness and entertainment. We have so much entertainment today that the world has no time for God and we live in an idle society. That's what you find in a society that is wholly given to idolatry. Now, does the world today that we live in, do they worship false god and bow before statues? No, it's just a different type of idolatry. It's the worship of self. It's the worship of I'm God and I'm here to please myself. So this stirred Paul up. He had to do something about it. And what did he do? Verse 22, here we are. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Acts 17, verse 22. God's Word says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. 
God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands, as though He needed anything, seeing He giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not far from every one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of our own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold and, or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commendeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, We will hear thee again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I'd like to bring your attention to verse 30. Paul says, the times of this ignorance God winked at. They are an ignorant people. The people he's preaching to, they are ignorant. And he says, but now God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. I want to preach this morning on God's command to all men. God's command to all men. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to gather around your word. We thank you for the record that you've given to us of the activities of the first century church in Jerusalem and then the first century churches and how the gospel spread, not just in Jerusalem but around the world. Lord, it is our desire that we might be not just a 21st century church, but a 1st century church. That we might exhibit the characteristics, the zeal, uh, the message of the 1st century churches. And so Lord, we ask that you would do a work in our hearts, help us to understand the importance of your work in this world and what you've given to this church. And we ask, Lord, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at our text here, we ask the question, first of all, what did uh, Paul find in Athens? And I mentioned those four things early on in the message. We also note here that they're bringing Paul to uh, what is referred to as Mars Hill, or according to verse 19, they brought him unto Areopagus. And so we ask the question here, where is Paul standing? I think it's important for us to make note of where Paul is standing. Paul was basically asked here to present his doctrine to a special gathering before Areopagus. Now, Areopagus 
was basically the highest court in Athens. Uh, this gathering took place not only in Areopagus, but also on a hill car- called Mars Hill. And so this court on Mars Hill was used as a place of trial. Uh, but also, it was also a place where those in authority would give an opinion on a matter. And so here in this case, Paul here is not being tried as a criminal as he was, for example, in Thessalonica or or when when he was in Philippi when he was in prison. Now, he was in prison because people brought a false witness against him. But in this case, he's not being tried for being a criminal. Rather, he is being examined by what he is teaching the people. Early on in this uh, scene in Athens, the Bible says he is disputing daily, uh, not only with the Jews, but in the market daily. Uh, He is arguing back with the philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics. And so basically, uh, Paul, by his message, is stirring the city up. He's disrupting things, as by the way, the gospel will always do. And he comes here, they bring him finally to, okay, well, let's, let's bring you before our counselors. Let's bring you before our magistrates and see what they say about what we're hearing, which to us is a new doctrine. Let's hear the matter. And so that's what this is. Again, the result of this is they're just going to dismiss Paul. He's going to go on uh, and be dismissed from, but this is basically a setting where they're allowing Paul to give a message and they're going to examine as to the worthiness of the message, or whether the people should reject the message altogether. If you notice by the end of this scene, uh, some say, we will hear thee again on this matter. We're going to give you another opportunity to to come back and to give us some more of what you've been uh, declaring. And so understand here, there's the audience of those who are in authority in Athens, and no doubt there's a crowd that's gathered around, and the text indicates to all that, that Paul stands up in the midst of this, And he has an opportunity to declare God. Where is Paul standing? He is standing on Mars Hill, a public place, a place where people would uh, hear and debate on manners. Now, the next question as we come into our passage is, how does Paul address the men in Athens? Uh, So far, as far as we've seen in Paul's uh, uh, missionary journeys, in the first missionary journey, You remember he came to Lystra. Now up to that point, all the cities, Paul always went first to a synagogue. And in the synagogue, the people in the synagogue would be familiar with God. They knew about Jehovah God. They believed in the Creator God. What they did not know was, who they did not know was Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ, or so Paul, when he preached, he preached Christ to them. He he went through the Old Testament accounts and he brought their attention to Jesus Christ. But both in Lystra, which was a pagan city, and here in Athens, he, he does not begin with, with the Old Testament. He, he really begins with the foundation of all things. He begins with God and the creation. And so Paul here addresses the men of Athens maybe in a little different way than he typically does as he's preaching. He is, uh, again, uh, preaching in front of the people. On Mars Hill, you would have basically altars all throughout uh, Mars Hill and beside uh, Mars Hill where people would come and they would worship all of those different gods. And so I want us to see here how Paul preaches and addresses them and how he deals with them. 
In verse 22, before he begins the message here and goes into the details about God and Jesus Christ, notice what he says to them in verse 22. Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. And so notice here first, when we think about how does Paul address the men of Athens, first Paul speaks of their religious devotion. Uh, Notice he says to them, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Now, the expression here, too superstitious, basically means uh, you're you're more religious. Uh, Paul addresses them and he speaks about basically their religious devotion. Remember here on Mars Hill there would be Uh, there would be all kinds of altars. He mentions in verse 23 that as he passed by and day after day when he was looking through Athens, he was observing their worship. He was observing what they were doing. And he says, and I found an altar when I was looking through all the altars that you had. I found one altar that was one of the inscription was to the unknown God. And so when Paul says, in all things you're too superstitious, He's saying you're more religious than any place I've ever been. He's basically saying to men, to them as Athenians, he says you have more gods than any city I've ever been to. You have more altars than any city I've ever been to. Uh, You have more festivals. You have more religious ceremonies than any place I've ever been. Uh, They were more diligent. They were more studious in their worship of their gods than any other place Paul had ever been. However, I think we all understand that great religious devotion and even sincerity does not determine truth. Uh, These uh, uh, men of Athens, no doubt, had a, a religious system and they had so many gods and their observation, Paul could not help but notice their devotion. What he sees is that the city early on is wholly given to idolatry. Completely uh, turned over the expression wholly given means utterly and completely. And so the city completely given to idolatry, he says, I perceive that you are uh, too superstitious. You're more religious than any place I've ever been, but you're, you're wrong because I've seen in an inscription to the unknown God. And so Paul first speaks of their religious devotion, but then he speaks of their spiritual ignorance. Spiritual ignorance. In verse 23 says, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions. So he says, you're, you're passionate, you're, you're devoted, you're, you're very religious, but I, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And notice, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now the word ignorance here when he says that, uh, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, the word ignorance means not to know. Uh, basically he says you're, you're worshiping a God that you don't even know. You remember when Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well in John 4? She says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And Jesus, what did he tell the woman at the wall? He says, ye know not what ye worship. You are ignorant 
You don't have the knowledge about God. He says, they that worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so the ignorance is the the absence of, of the truth. And so these men in Athens did not have the knowledge of God. They had even built an altar Uh, with the inscription to the unknown God. And so what we find in Athens is this. We find uh, religious zeal, but spiritual ignorance. Religious zeal, but spiritual ignorance. If you hold your place here in Acts 17, turn with me to Romans 10. There is another point here where Paul, he... um, speaks of those who are Jews who had rejected Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice what he says about them. Because no doubt the Jews were a zealous people. And notice what he says in Romans 10. I think we can use that as a parallel passage for what is going on in Acts chapter 17. Notice with me Romans 10 verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to what? Knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. So what do we learn here in Romans 10, and also in Acts chapter 17? What do we learn? Well, we learn that zeal is not a substitute for ignorance. Zeal is not a substitute for ignorance. There are many people today in the world who are very zealous about the religion. There are many people who are very dedicated. They are faithful, whether it be to attendance to some religious ceremony. But their zeal is not a substitute for ignorance. In this case, in Romans 10, Paul says they they have a zeal of God. But that zeal is not according... Knowledge. So, what is condemned is not their zeal. What is condemned is their ignorance. And I think that if we do know the true and living God, and we know the truth about God, that there ought to be some zeal. I hope we understand that. But the zeal should be according to knowledge. We also learn that ignorance is the cause of man made religion. Ignorance is the cause of man-made religion. Uh, In both of those instances, for example, here in Acts chapter 17, we see that they had all kinds of altars. They were ignorant about God. And even when they were so ignorant about God, they said, well, let's, in case we missed any God, let's have one altar dedicated to the unknown God, to the God whom we do not know, and so what do they do is that they, they made up a religion. They made up an altar. They made up a, 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 a system where they observed some type of ritual, some type of observance to this unknown God that they did not know. And by the way, that's always the attempts of, of men. And so ignorance is the cause of man-made religion. Why are there so many religions today in, in the world? There are thousands of them. Uh, And so which one is right? Well, uh, those who are ignorant will go about to establish a false religion. In Romans 10 he says, uh, they uh, being ignorant of God's righteousness, they've, what? Established their own righteousness. That's what they did. 
And so they, they don't know. And again, in, in Romans 10, he says, what, 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 what did the Jews miss? They miss Christ. Uh, they, they, they miss because they, they gave themselves, and so they established their own religion. They established their own righteousness. They thought to themselves, well, let, let's see here. This is what we think about God, and so this is what we think that God wants, and so let's establish our own righteousness. And he says, that's man-made religion. You see what? God's righteousness is found in Christ. And so, the ignorance here, ignorance is the cause of man-made religion. That's true in Athens. And, and we also see, what we learn is that we learn that false religion blinds a man to the truth. False religion blinds a man to the truth. When you establish your own righteousness, what is the result? As a result, they have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. And so, when man creates his own religion by ignorance, that false religion blinds him to the truth. He may be very zealous about it, but he is ignorant. So then, where does Paul start in the sermon? Again, he speaks of their religious devotion, and he also speaks of their spiritual ignorance. But I have another question here as we proceed. Is What did Paul emphasize in this sermon? What did he emphasize? If you notice with me here, uh, from verse 24, uh, really through almost the remainder of the chapter, uh, Paul is going to establish a number of truths, and really he begins with the beginning. He's going to teach them about some basic things that you and I may know, but it is evident that they did not know in those days. I want you to notice here, first of all, he teaches them about God's power. Do you notice in verse 24, he says, this is how he begins, he says, God that made the world and all things therein. He established the, the, establishes the, the basic truth that the unknown God that they ignorantly worshipped is indeed the almighty, the all-powerful Jehovah God. That He is the only true God and He is the creator of heaven and earth. That all things were made by this one true and living God. And so He establishes really the truth of creation. That, that, that we come from God. That we are, are created. And God is the creator. And so He teaches them about God's power. Then He also teaches them about God's authority. Notice He says, God that made the world and, they, and all that... The, all things therein, seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth. And so He establishes God's authority. He says He is Lord, that means that He is, he is ruler. He is ruler. Uh, you see, they, uh, they had uh, conducted themselves and they were worshipers of false gods. And, and uh, uh, in, in their ignorance, they did not know that God was, Jehovah God was the creator and they also did not know that there is a ruler whom they will answer to. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He also teaches them about God's nature, and perhaps this is um, the, the greatest thing that Paul gets into when he describes God, because this would be so foreign to their understanding and their concept of God. Uh, notice with me, he says, um, seeing his Lord of heaven and earth, verse 24 Dwelleth not in temples made with hands. 
Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And so notice here, he teaches them a little bit about God's nature. What are they familiar with there? Well, the Greeks in that time, specifically in Athens, would have temples dedicated to different gods. They would have altars all throughout the city of Athens that they would come and they would have their observances and they would bring gifts to those altars. And so, uh, they, again, I don't believe that there's any uh, city in the Macedonian, uh, Macedonian region that had uh, so many gods as the Athenians did. And here he is teaching them about God. He says, God, the God that you do not know is completely different from anything that you, uh, that you, uh, any idea that you have about God and about what a God is. Let me tell you about God. He, he is, uh, again, we could say, the Bible says that God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so notice he says, first of all, he tells them in verse 24, that God is uncontainable. He says, He dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Well, to the Greeks, uh, that's what the extent of their gods was. You go to worship this God over here, Zeus, you go to the temple of Zeus. And you go there and that's where Zeus is. He is contained to this temple. But, but Jehovah God is uncontainable. He cannot be contained by man. You cannot establish a structure uh, made by the ability and the power of man to contain God. Uh, it is a structure built by human hands. It cannot contain God. And so this is something that is totally foreign to them. So God is uncontainable. He also uh, tells them that God is unmeasurable. Notice verse 25. Neither is worshipped with men's hands. In other words, what they would do at that time, the Greeks, they would have a carving or they would melt some precious metal and they would have a mold of some type of God or some type of figurine and then they would set that up on an altar and people would say, here is the God Zeus. Here's the god Athena. And so they would have all of their gods that would be curved by the hands of men that are in a sense measured by men. And here he says that God is not worshipped with men's hands. An image or a, of, a, of, a, of a carving cannot represent God. Now I, I don't know uh, what type of uh, altar they had or what the altar looked like for the unknown God but evidently Paul says when he saw the inscription whatever that representation was he looked at the inscription he says it's the unknown God he says that is not God God cannot be worshipped with men's hands God is uncontainable He is unmeasurable notice again he tells them even that God is unsurpassed in verse 25 he says neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything. Oh, I like that. He says to them, Do you think God needs you? Do you think God needs a temple that you can build for Him? Do you think God needs your abilities to uh, carve an image that is representative of Him? No, God is unsurpassed. God does not need any man. God does not need man, nor does He need what man can offer Him in the physical realm. Often some of those would come to their gods and they would bring food. As if their God could eat. As if the statue somehow could move. 
They would bow before a statue and they would pray to that statue, not realizing that the stone cannot hear them. And he says, God is unsurpassed. He cannot be surpassed. Uh, you, 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 uh, God does not need you. I gave the illustration, I think, some time ago where there, there was this, uh, this woman, she... Uh, she uh, was on a plane, and there's a preacher, and there's a middle seat between them. And in the middle seat, uh, this uh, lady uh, brought out a statue, and she put it in the seat, and then she strapped uh, her uh, God in the seat beside her. And the preacher said, well, 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 what is this? He said, well, it's my God. I don't want anything to happen to him. What kind of God is that? A God that needs man. God does not need man. He is not dependent on man. So God is uncontainable. He's unmeasurable. He's unsurpassed. But also he says that God is unparalleled. Notice in verse 25 he says, Seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. God cannot be compared. Man is completely dependent upon God. God is not only the creator of man, but God is also the life giver. He gives the breath to man, and He also gives to man everything that He enjoys in this life. God is the giver. All Every uh, good and perfect gift comes from God. And so God is unparalleled. Man is completely dependent upon God, not the other way around. Now this is new to them. Why? Because to their understanding, the God is contained to the temple. The image of their God is graven and fashioned by the hands of man. That their God, they, uh, their God is their gods were dependent upon them and their ability, and them bringing food to those gods and providing for them and material and physical things. And, and he tells them, "You have it all wrong. The the unknown God is a God that you have no concept of. You you're completely ignorant of this God. He is completely different from anything that you've imagined in your own mind." And so he teaches them about God's power, God's authority, God's nature. But then he also teaches them about God's wisdom. Now he goes and he, he talks about mankind. And notice what he says in uh, verse 26. And hath, who hath done this God, hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not far from every one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone given by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance, God winked at. So what is he talking about? He talks about God's wisdom, how God has ordered the world. The, the affairs of men. He talks about the nations of men. By the way, just a quick reminder here. He says, He hath made of one blood all nations. I, I, I need to address that today because we live in a, uh, a society that does not know how to think. There are no races, plural, in the world. There is only one race, and that is a human race. There is only one blood, and that is human blood. And so the attempts today to divide and to say, well, there are some people that are better than others, and some races and some nations. No, we are all one blood, 
created in the image of God. That's what the Bible teaches. He goes on to say that he ordered the nations and he determined the times before appointing the bounds of their habitation. And by the way, that goes back to the Tower of Babel. You remember they tried to build a tower to reach God and God divided them by language. And he remember the command was to go into all the world and to, to multiply and to uh, spread throughout the world. And they didn't do that. And so God helped them. And so he divided them. God ordered that. That is the, the bounds of their habitation. And so he appointed that, verse 27, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not very far from every one of us. And so he talks about here the wisdom of God and how God ordered things. And really he did that so that uh, those nations might seek after God. Now, notice what he says here in verse 27 that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not far from every one of us. There's a picture here when he says, if haply they might feel after Him. The picture is one of the man who is blind, trying to feel after the one he has lost. He cannot find his way, but he feels around seeking the Lord yet he is unable to find him. It seems here that the Lord is so distant from him, and yet he is near. Although God is near, the man is not able to find him because he is blind, and he is searching in the darkness. He gives them a representation of what was going on in Athens. He says, God has ordered the bound of the habitations. He's made uh, all nations that are one blood. And He uh, devised, uh, determined, appointed the bounds of their habitation. And He did that so that they might seek God. And the truth is today that uh, if happily they might feel after Him. And so they're searching why they have the inscription to the unknown God. But remember, He says, you ignorantly worship Him. You're a blind man looking around. You can't see uh, you, you know that all the other gods are, are not the answer and, and you can't see and you walk around, you're trying to feel and you feel that because you can't see God that He is so distant from you. But yet He is near. It seems that you can't find why because He says you're, you're ignorant. You, you, you don't know the God that you, that you worship. By the way, when Jesus comes, what did He say? He said, in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not abide in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You see here, Paul, he shows them, he says, you're uh, in darkness, you're blind, you're, you're trying to see for God, but you don't know God. You are ignorant of God. But he is about to preach to them about Jesus Christ. He is about to preach to them about the light of the world who is Jesus Christ. And so he teaches them about God, God's wisdom and what God has, uh, has ordered and what God wants to do. And notice what he says in verse 28. He says, For in Him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of our own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. He said even some of the great poets have kind of communicated the concept, and isn't it strange that we might uh, carve gods of gold and silver and yet we are the offspring of God. Isn't it strange that we carve gods and yet we say we come from a divine source? 
It seems strange that God would be dependent on man when he is the life giver. But notice what he also says. He teaches them about God's mercy. Do you notice with me verse 30? He says, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commendeth all men everywhere to repent. Interesting here, the expression here, God winked at, means that uh, it means really to, to overlook. It really means to not punish. So the time of this ignorance, while they've been ignorant, seeking for God but not finding Him because they're blind and they're uh, uh, worshiping whom they do not know, he says, the, uh, God, uh, during the time of this ignorance, God winked at He did not punish you in your ignorance. It means that God has been exercising His mercy upon humanity. God has been long-suffering to mankind. Though man has sinned again and again and again, God did not immediately judge them. God has given mankind the opportunity to repent. The goodness of God, Romans 2 says, leads us to repentance in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Bible says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, God is a merciful God. And He tells them, He says, You don't know God. You don't know who you worship. And I'm here to affirm you that God is the God, the Almighty Creator God. He has all power. That God is a God of authority. He is Lord. That means we're going to answer to Him. That God is not a God that we can fashion. His nature is that He is uncontainable. He is immeasurable. He is unsurpassed. He is unparalleled. And that same God who you sin against time and time and time again, God has been long-suffering and merciful towards you you and so God is a God of mercy and long-suffering and so notice what he says here is the time for decision making verse 30 and the time of this ignorance God winked at but now commendeth all men everywhere to repent I want you to notice here that there is going to be three things that Paul is going to give to the men of Athens. It's interesting because this would be so much different than all of the philosophies of the Epicureans and the Stoics and all the storytelling that would take place on Mars Hill and all the debates, the philosophical debates. Many of the philosophical debates do not bring men to a point of decision. And here Paul says, I've revealed to you the God... Uh, the, the God of heaven, the creator, the all-powerful God and His nature and His long-suffering and His mercy towards you. So here's what you must do. Here is the point where you must make a decision and He's going to give them three truths. He's going to talk about repentance, He's going to talk about judgments, and then He's going to talk about assurance. Do you notice with me verse 30? But now commendeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. That man is Christ. If you think about the context. Wherefore he hath given, notice, assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Three things he tells them. Repent. Because judgment is coming. But you can have assurance through that man that I'm preaching to you. What did they have to do? Here's three questions I have. What did these men have to do 
then why must they do it? And finally, how must they do it? What must they do is here he says, uh, God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And by the way here, uh, a command is a command. This is God's command. Uh, this is what God's command is to the whole world. He, he, he commands all men everywhere to repent. Uh, that is the, the preaching of the gospel. What does it mean to repent? The, to repent means to think differently. You must think differently about who? About God. You must think differently about who He is. You must think differently about this world and, 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 and the grace and the long-suffering and the mercy of God. You must think differently about the man that I've been preaching you day after day after day. His name is Jesus Christ. You must think differently about Him. You have to change your mind. Repent of your wicked ways. Change your mind about who God is. Repent of your, your wickedness and your evilness and your, uh, your, your, your ignorance and, and all the things that you've done in your life. Uh, repent before God. Acknowledge that you are sinful and that you are under the wrath and the judgment of God. Repent. Why? This is what they must do. They must repent. Change your mind. Why? Because judgment is coming. Notice, he says... Because, repent, why? Because, verse 31, He hath appointed a day in the which He will judge the world in righteousness. God is described as the righteous judge. And when God judge, judges, it will be in righteousness. You see, in the world there may be people who are bad judges who may not judge righteous judgments. But when God judges, He will judge in righteousness. And the judgment that men will receive in that day will be merited. The, the idea here of judgment is why do they have to repent? Uh, why must they do it? Because uh, under the judgment that means that they are condemned and they are punished. And let me just remind us here, I know we are all sitting in church today, but let me remind all of us that we, are, we were all under the condemnation of God. And we all deserve the judgment of God. Why? Because we are sinners by birth and we are sinners by choice and we deserve an eternal separation and death and hell uh, from God for eternity. Why? Because we are wicked at the core and we rebel against God. We are, declare the enemies of God. And so we are all deserving of the judgment of God. Let's not think for just a moment as we look at the world and look at the world and the wickedness of the world. I say, wow, look at these people, how wicked they are. Might we include ourselves with them and say, man, we are just as wicked as they are and we are just as deserving of the, the judgment and the punishment of God as they are. But we have been the recipients of the wonderful mercy and the long-suffering of God. So repent, why? Because judgment is coming. By the way, may there never be in us, in our minds or our hearts, any ounce of thrill or joy at the prospect that somebody might be going to hell. Because as surely as I look at you today and as you look at me up here standing behind this pulpit, I hope you understand that I deserve to be in hell in this very moment. 
May there be not one ounce of thrill. May the words never come out of our mouth says, man, well, they deserve hell. And I'm glad they're going. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? So repentance, why? Because judgment is coming. But here's the wonderful thing. God gives assurance. He gives assurance. Do you notice? Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof? If you repent, what will happen? He hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him, who? Jesus, from the dead. Oh, we have assurance. You see, if we realize uh, that we deserve the judgment of God and as we stand under the wrath of God, if we repent before the Almighty God, acknowledge that we are sinners before Him and we are not deserving uh, of being recipients of His grace and His mercy and eternal life, uh, but yet we repent before Him, we place our faith in Christ, uh, our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and God, He gives us assurance. How does He give us assurance? He gives us assurance in Christ. You see, my assurance and your assurance does not come from my ability and your ability and my, uh, um, I guess you could say, uh, righteousness or your righteousness. Our assurance comes from Christ. His death, His burial, and His resurrection. God hath made him Christ to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. How how can we have assurance? How can you, uh, somebody might say, well, you're a Christian, how can you say you have assurance uh, of heaven? And I I would tell you, say, well, I don't really have assurance in and of myself. I, I don't have the, the, the ability or the confidence to know that my acceptance is based on anything that is found in me. I'm saying to you that I have assurance not because of what I've done or because of my worthiness. I am worthy to be in heaven not because of who I am but because of what Jesus, who Jesus is and what He did for me. And if I meet God and God says, why should I let you into heaven? I would say, I don't deserve to be in heaven. I deserve to be in hell, but I've trusted in Jesus Christ and my sin was paid for, was punished, and your wrath was poured upon the Son. And so, I'm not worthy, but Jesus is worthy. And I claim Him. Do you have assurance today? Do you know for certain, as I look at you this morning, Do you have assurance that you have eternal life, that your sins have been forgiven in Christ? Do you have that insurance? If you don't, could I encourage you to repent as Paul calls on these Athenians to repent? Could I encourage you to remember that judgment is coming, that one day you will meet God face to face? Hebrews says, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. But you don't have to face God alone on that day. You can face God in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you're accepted. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. If you're in Christ, you're not condemned. 
If you're outside of Christ, you're already condemned. The Bible says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Well, that's much like the world, isn't it? Oh, that is ridiculous. Others said, we will hear thee on this matter. Maybe the philosophers thought, well, let's ponder this for a little bit. So Paul departed from among them. Notice, immediately there was no result. As a matter of fact, Paul laughed, and he doesn't know. His effect, or the impact of his preaching, but verse 34 says, how be it. Paul didn't know. How be it. Certain men clave unto him, and believed among the which was Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Notice the Areopagite is one of the men, I believe, that was on the council. One of the men who had a position of authority in Athens, believed, and then one woman, Damaris. So it seems that Paul left this meeting, and he thought, I wonder if I've had any uh, uh, impact. And apparently after he left, some clave unto him. They found Paul. Why? Because they believed. Isn't that amazing that God can still do that today in the midst of the world in which we live? So may the Lord help us to think about the emphasis of Paul's message and to realize. Now, let me just say that sometimes we might feel, well, I don't feel like we're, we're making that much difference. We're going out, I've tried to share the gospel with people, I just don't see that we're making uh, much of an impact. Certainly, Paul, sometimes he went in places and there was many people who believed. But on many occasions, there was not many people. There might have been one or two in this case. Our responsibility is not to fold under the pressure of the Athenian environment, but to be faithful in declaring God and who He is and His creation and His power and His long-suffering and Jesus Christ. And just to preach it, even though you don't know how somebody may receive it, be faithful to declare it. Isn't that the answer for the world? Let's be unashamed of it and let's be faithful in declaring it.